You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi, everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. Now, on to our guest. Kaya Oaks is the author of four books, including The Nuns Are All Right and Radical Reinvention. Her fifth book, The Defiant Middle, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World, is forthcoming from Broadleaf Books in November 2021. Her work has been printed in numerous national publications, and she is a sought-after public speaker. She was one of a select number of international journalists who traveled to Rome and the Vatican in 2016 to study writing on religion in politically turbulent times. She is a faculty member in the college writing programs at UC Berkeley, where she teaches creative nonfiction, composition, and research writing, and she is a trained spiritual director. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, Kaya Oaks tells us what it means to her to be a layperson in the Catholic Church. We talk about the humility required when teaching, writing, and listening, and offering one's prophetic voice. We discuss Oaks' journey into religion writing and being a spiritual director, and how living a life of faith and work requires keeping one's ego in check. And we talk about the mess of loneliness that comes with her being a Catholic in Oakland, California, the most secular region of the country. Enjoy. Hi, Kaya. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. It's nice to see you and hear you today, Julia. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I'm really glad you made time for this because I know you have a lot going on all the time, a full teaching schedule and a full writing schedule. Uh, I feel like I've known you forever, but I realize it's probably only been a few years if I'm, <laughs> if I really think back. And, um, I came to know you initially, I think because I read something you wrote in America magazine about being a godmother. And then that sort of led me on this little journey of exploring your writing and your work and, uh, loved your memo- memoir, Radical Reinvention, really connected with your story. And then I was surprised to learn that you uh, came from a background of writing about music and your first book was called Slanted and Enchanted, right? Slanted Slanted and Enchanted. Yes, it came out in 2008, I think. 2008. Okay, so it came out a while ago. And but really, you started off your writing career writing about indie culture and music. And here you are now really writing about mystics and saints and religion and spirituality and all these other mysteries. So was that surprising for you? 
this yes thing? <laughs> <laughs> um just because happen? yeah it's a long and winding road and um I think it was just a, in a lot of ways, it was a natural transition because I was always somebody who was very interested in the part of creativity that has to do with questions about where does art come from and inspiration and how do people decide, how do you look at, um, you know, I, I know you're in Chicago and I, I love the Art Institute. I love the Chagall windows there. And like, how does Chagall decide to do something like that unless it was a commission? How do, how do artists, you know, how does a musician decide to write a song? Where does that come from? What is the mystery of creativity as part of creation in a larger sense? And um, my interest in spirituality and religion sort of dovetailed with that in the sense that I, I found a lot of the same questions um, are what motivate theology and, um, and the study of, and in a larger sense beyond theology, the kind of um, what I think is the vocation of the lay person in, the, in our church and in the church is a larger, the smaller C Catholic meaning universal. The vocation of the layperson is to is to sort of like figure these things out on our own with the guidance of you know the, of the tradition. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, I love that, and uh, I think we've talked about that before. And it's a shared passion of mine—the way creativity and spirituality really go together. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely, I uh, find it fascinating that you brought up the vocation of the layperson is is about figuring this out. So, what is the vocation? I think that's. I mean, that's the question that I'm always trying to answer when people say, are you, are you a Catholic writer? You know, are you part of the Catholic literary tradition? And you and I have also talked about this, which is what is that? Who owns it? You know, why does somebody feel that some people are on that list and some people aren't? And so I've always put writer first and, you know, and that's my job is to teach writing and that is, but, and then religion is part of, it's like that idea of an intersectional identity um, that feminists talk about how our class, our class race, gender identity, uh, jobs that we do, all those things, you know, intersect to create forms of oppression, but religion is often left out of that conversation. So the vocation of the lay person becomes, how are we responsible because the church cannot um, give us everything that we need, then we are sort of on our own a lot of the time. I don't mean we're abandoned, but just that mm-hmm. like, like, you know, we don't, we're not, we don't work for, I don't work for the church. I don't teach the Catholic school. I write for America, which is a Jesuit magazine, but I also write for secular magazines. You see what I mean? So it's sort of that question of like, the vocation of the layperson is sort of like to take the, the stories of the church out into the other into the rest of the world and see how do they what does it mean to be catholic in spaces that aren't catholic Mm -hmm. so you know what does it mean for me to be catholic at uc berkeley or what does it mean for uh 
anybody to be Catholic in activist spaces, which as you know, are often very secular, right? Mm -hmm. Increasingly secular. So that's what I mean. Um, and then there's a whole other side to this that has to do with feminism, which I won't go into right now, but <laughs> you're, you're I'm, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, right? Like it's this question of like in a church where women don't lead, how do we lead one another? Mm -hmm. And how do we, I think the better word there is, I think women in the church tend to accompany one another rather than think about I'm a leader and you're following me, rather that we're journeying together. Mm -hmm. And so again, lay people have to sort of think about our responsibility to one another in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. As you say all that, it makes me think so much about like, that's why I'm a sister, <laughs> you know, like that's why being a Catholic sister Franciscan really works for me because it is about that communal, that camaraderie, the um, accountability that is just naturally put in place because we're sharing life, we're sharing the call, the mission. Thinking about lay people in the church is really interesting for me too, because I think as a Catholic sister, I, I recognize I'm sort of in the in this gray area in between where some people don't see us as sisters as lay people but yet we are <laughs> right and yet we are obviously really uh tied by our identity to the institutional church and our profession like makes it clear that we are catholic church women so <laughs> it's a different yeah mm -hmm. do you think as a as a a married laywoman, though, you're able to sort of float along those boundaries and like do you have a different type of freedom are there different bridges that you get to explore yeah, I mean, I have a lot, I do have a lot more freedom in a lot of ways. So, for example, with writers who, um, who do work at Catholic schools, um, or who only publish with Catholic publishers, there, as you know, as we've seen, there's a lot of lines that you can't cross, and that can be very dangerous. Um, if you do cross them in terms of employment. <laughs> and, and so I have a lot more, I was on a retreat uh, eight, nine years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And um, I was just starting to wrestle with these questions about what was it going to mean to write about religion as this very private thing that I was going to become very public about. And the, the Jesuit, I was who was he just died of COVID actually, which is really oh. sad. Um, he, the Jesuit who was directing the retreat, said, um, you know, think about the freedom you have to say things other people can't say as a gift. And also that you're taking a vow to the church to 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 stand up and say, you know, to speak, to talk back to the church when it does things wrong, because you, you take a vow as to the church when you get confirmed, you know, and like, I did that later in life. But then you're also like saying, I'm going to speak on behalf of people in the church who can't say these things. In other words, oh. right, like, so when somebody uh, in the church feels certain ways and they can't write about it because they might lose their job or something then I can and mm -hmm. so that's a real responsibility that I I take very seriously in the sense of it it's important work and then you know I'm married to somebody who's not Catholic and that also gives me a lot of a very different perspective and a very different position because we 
um, are not, you know, the kind of like cookie cutter Catholic family um, with the, the particular number of, you know, <laughs> between right. two and 10 children, you know, and the minivan, like, it's yeah, just right. not, it's just not who we are. And that's, yeah. I think that's important because mm. people need to know that there are many kinds of relationship in the church, like mm. personal relationships that don't fit into the boxes of um, what other people might think is right or good. Mm. You know, I'm hearing a lot about authenticity and like the freedom of showing up and being like, say, uh, the freedom of showing up and in your authentic self, right? And claiming your identity and being grounded in who you truly are and how that gives you a freedom to to have offer a prophetic voice in a different sort of way than a person who's trying to conform or like meet the expectations or follow the rules might might uh, may have so do you do you understand your role as like being a offering a prophetic voice in the church you know, Julia, the first time somebody said that to me, I was so uncomfortable and I was just like, <laughs> shut up. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's a good sign. Like, I was like, you know, you know what happens to prophets is that they get thrown down the well, you know, and they're right. at the bottom of the well going, you really better listen to me. Like I'm at the bottom of this well. Like it just, uh, my spiritual director often says that to me. He says, you know, and he's a Franciscan too. So of course I take him very seriously. So like he often says that, you know, he says, I see you as, as a Jeremiah. And I'm like, oh, great. You know, like, so I'm going to get thrown down to the bottom of the well. Thanks. But like, it's also like Jeremiah is the one who says that, you know, God seduced him and he let himself be seduced or in one translation <laughs> or, duped, right? yeah. or duped. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so it's true. Like I let, you know, I let God into my life and I was, I was like, I was like, in some ways I felt tricked or surprised or, and, but that is, but if prophecy is calling people to uh, understand when something is unjust and and using your gifts to point that out and to try to write that then yeah that's the job of journalism right. <laughs> so, every, so every journalist is actually a prophet and well the, the good ones yeah the good ones okay. <laughs> it's probably important that we clarify right the ones right. who are have the common good justice care for the poor the little ones all in their their mind and their vision of, of what they're, the truth they're telling. Which yeah. quite a lot of them do. And it, it always strikes me that the, the justice work in the church during the abuse crisis, you know, has been done by journalists, right? And then a lot of them were Catholic or lapsed Catholic and they felt this desire to like, you know, call the church to accountability. And they, you know, they brought about a lot of that change. And I think that is really important for people to pay attention to um, even now. Just why is it that people who are marginalized or out or othered by the church are often the ones who call it to accountability? Mm, yeah, yeah. And there's um, something about humility too that I that I think is required of of those that that are willing to speak the truth for the sake of others, right? 
Yeah. What is your work of teaching and spiritual direction, which you like, I are your other job. You do so many things like you're not just a writer, but anyway, and those, and those other ministries of spiritual direction and teaching, what have you learned about the importance of being with the truth? That's a, that's a good way of putting it. I think anybody who teaches knows about that. The, the truth of teaching is that humility of knowing that every day you're going to make a mistake or just embarrass yourself um, and that your students are going to call you out on it. it when you're lucky. Sometimes they are afraid of you, which is um, something that I, as I get older, I see my students more intimidated by me than when I was like a, a young pup um, mm. of 27. And I started, I looked younger than I was and I started teaching and my students just, you know, were calling me out all the time. Just like, you know, you messed that up. You did that wrong, blah, blah, blah. And uh, in spiritual direction, it's, it's again, guiding people to recognize experiences of that they may not have recognized uh, at the time or guiding them to understand encounters with grace the divine you know higher power whatever you call it and in both of those cases it's about calling yourself out too and saying like am i doing this like do i teach because my ego likes it and i like being the boss or do I teach because I actually care about empowering students to help them find their own agency at a school? At my school has like 40,000 students. They can get very lost. And then beyond graduation, can they use writing to empower themselves and find their own agency? Do I do spiritual direction? Because again, it feeds my ego in the sense that somebody comes to me and they're like, oh, I want to work with you because I only do it very, very, very part time. And somebody has to find me, find my website, you know, like dig me up. That's my ego part. But then is that the truth part is like I'm doing it because I felt called to it for a long time because it had helped me so much. Right. And so how can I turn that around? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be called for you? When I think about vocation, I always think about the word, I'm, you know, I'm a word nerd, right? And it's, it's vocare, that's the Latin root, which means um, to be called, but it also means calling, so like calling others. So your vocation is both what you feel called to do in the sense that you, not that you even enjoy it necessarily, but that you can't you have a you're you can't picture yourself doing something else or you've tried other things and they were miserable uh and this is less miserable (laughs) um but that it involves calling others and when you when you are leaning into and growing into your your vocation as a human being other people are attracted to what you do in our circles of kind of religion and literature and activism and stuff can often manifest in somebody who's thought of again as a leader mm-hmm. um, but more often tends to be somebody who is if they are a leader in some they tend to be the kind of leader who is always playing down their leadership and in the sense that they're trying not to be seen as a leader if that makes sense I think a lot about uh, William Barber um, 
and and how char- I saw him speak here in, a couple years ago, and he is obviously incredibly charismatic, obviously a great preacher, a great activist leader, but he doesn't talk about himself. Mm-hmm. It's never I, you know, it's we us. Mm-hmm. And he is playing down his leadership and that organization uh, really pushes this horizontal model of leadership. And I know sisters do that very well also. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so that vocation, it's like, it's, it has to be reciprocal. Like it's like I'm called to do something, but also like other people see me doing it or and they feel like mm-hmm. they want to get involved too or or just, they just, you know, I admire people who are doing things I would never do. My sister's a doctor, you know, and like, I think that's incredible. Would I ever want to be in medicine? No way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just like, no way. But, uh, but like, she's so natural mm. at it. And I, I, I think that's vocation. Mm, yeah, yeah. And you, I've heard you say in the past that you really see your vocation as both writer and teacher. It's not one nor more than the other. So how do they, they complement each other? Because if I only wrote, and I've thought about this a lot lately because of the pandemic, you know, has forced us to make so many choices about, and, and forced us to give up choices in a lot of ways. And um, I've I've been working on this book and, and so I've really, really just been doing this one thing. And I thought to myself, if I hadn't had, if all I had done last year was write that book, I would have been so miserable. I need to have um, another job other than just writing because, and I think that's healthy. I think that you need when you're a writer to, turn outward and 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 that doesn't just mean sharing your writing with people i mean that's great but having a job job whether that's working at trader joe's or teaching or being a lawyer or a doctor or you know whatever it is um you know being a janitor it doesn't matter but what it does is it gives you this opportunity to kind of like again, your ego sort of has to be put in check and say like, I'm, I feel uh, when I'm writing that I'm very much in this little tiny space and mm. the pandemic has exacerbated that. And if I, if I hadn't had the opportunity to check in with my students, to be in communication with them, to be talking about someone else's writing, it would have been a horrible year. I mean, it was a bad enough year anyway, right? So like it was the 2020 was not an easy year. So I think, thank God that I had these people, these, they're not young adults, they're adults who are young, who I could, you know, I could say to like, how's your writing? What are you doing? What are you thinking about? How do you like this book? What's your life like? And that, that, kept me in check of just spiraling down into my own ego. Mm, Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think what you're saying there has a lot to do with like the universal human experience and just the spiritual life in general of like this, this uh, invitation to balance of both the inner and the outer. Like we have to be really in touch with what's going on in ourselves and tending to that self-care in our hearts and our minds and our feelings and our thoughts 
and not let any of that take over. <laughs> and at the same time, we need to have our gaze outward, right? To the community, to Christ, to, to the world and the needs of, of all. So um, yeah, so that, that's a beautiful mirroring when you put it that way. One of the books you wrote is on the nuns, N-O-N-E-S's. I wonder what you think might be most misunderstood by those of us who are very inside the church about those people who identify as having no religion, none. So my number one problem with a lot of people in the church who are evangelists is that they see the nuns as potential Catholics, right? Potential future Catholics. But we know from all the data, all the statistics that they are not likely to convert, right? They are people who are, um, for whatever reason, just they're not, they're very, very unlikely to be adult converts. And also there are not a lot of adult converts to Catholicism, let's face it. Um, And so, uh, what I think the approach instead is instead of saying to somebody like, hey, can I introduce you to this guy called Jesus Christ? And like, you know, and like thinking about it that way is instead to say, what do you actually believe about religion, God, you know, and what do you actually, what is your spiritual life like as a person who doesn't believe these things? Mm-hmm. So that's the approach I took to writing my book was to meet people sort of where they were and say rather than like if i were to give you a bible how you know what would you come back and tell me six weeks later that's not it it's to say what is your spiritual life like what are your encounters with the divine like why don't you want to be part of an institutional religion what do you think institutional religion is and oftentimes their understanding of it has very little to do with the church what the church actually teaches so with catholics for example people tend to think all catholics are just you know right wing uh, 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 people who are obsessed with um um with abortion you know that's it that's all because that's the platform of and so that sort of like the problem is that a lot of nuns are they don't they either don't know a lot about religion because they grew up non-religious or they had very toxic bad experiences of religion often with fundamentalist versions of religion so either fundamentalist evangelical christianity or like very very orthodox um strict catholic kind of homeschooling you know family backgrounds or orthodox Judaism or like strict Islam or something where there was a lot of you know uh, rules to follow and they were very bound by that and also nuns don't tend to be people who find it very suspicious and confusing that there's a lot of ties between religion and politics so they would prefer that this church and state remain separate so people in the church tend to think that they're all atheists, you know, who don't believe in God, but we know that like up to 60, 70% of them do believe in God. And then the ones who don't are sort of like, they're more agnostic, sort of like, it's not that I don't believe in God, it's just that I'm not sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's very different than the picture from the other side. Yeah, yeah. 
There's so much there that's interesting to me because part of what I'm hearing is that there's a lack of religious literacy in the, in the wider culture. And then part of how religion is misused and people are sort of forced to conform to certain structures and um, ways of being that don't match who they are created to be and who, you know, who they are authentically, like we were talking about before. So they don't have the freedom. And so then it just, it kind of forces them out of it. And yet I, I feel a bit compelled. Like I want to push back here if I can. And I just <laughs> want to challenge you because I know like you have a story of coming back to the Catholic church after you left. And so you, you're saying that this was unlikely for, for people to do, but yet you did it. <laughs> See, that's right. But at every event that I do, Julia, someone's like, but you did right. <laughs> but you, and I'm like, right. I'm a, you know, five foot 10, Capricorn with 18 tattoos, you know, I'm not like everybody else. I'm a godparent to my, um, my friend Laurel, um, who is an adult convert who also grew up in the Bay Area and has purple hair and like, you know, is very Berkeley. Um, but that she was like me, just she was Catholic attracted, you know, mm -hmm. she was attracted to that she went to a Catholic high school. She wasn't grew up Catholic, but she had been exposed to good things like about the church, mm -hmm. social justice. Um, and she lives in the neighborhood of this very activist black Catholic church in Oakland. And so she saw that side of the church and, and I saw a side that um, was very, I went to a Paulist parish, you know, or a Jesuit parish. I saw churches that were very open. I had a very unusual experience. And you know what the other unusual part of my experience is that when I was attracted to the church, nobody was like, you should come to Bible study. You should, you know, read this. Right. You should do this. You should do it. They just were like, you can come if you want to. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't like this bombardment of, mm -hmm. um, you know how you, when you go to a new church for the first time, uh, Timothy Egan in his book on pilgrimage, he, he writes about traveling around Europe on pilgrimage and he walks into this church in England and, and he says he feels like a blood donor at a vampire convention. Like, <laughs> they're all just like, new person, right? right like, right. there's a name tag. Except you know, when I go to a Catholic <laughs> church, like when I'm just like traveling and I pop, like no one will, like there's no hospitality sometimes. yeah they don't even realize you're there like okay I, that's I yes yeah i sometimes think like <laughs> no one interacted like did i just like enter like an uh thing and i turned invisible and I, it's all like yeah so wrong. but as soon as you start asking questions right. then it's like you tr you trigger the uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. so like it was both very welcoming and not a forced conversion thing it was yeah. just this really sweet, wonderful older priest uh, who died a few years ago, who would just, you know, say like, and he just sat down with me and, and I told him my whole spiel and he was like, you know, what you're going to bring with you from your life into the church is a gift. So don't change. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you will change, but like, don't change who you are because that's not what it's about. And I went and saw him again. <sighs> And I said, I'm a writer and I'm a journalist and like, I, I don't fit in with Catholic church. It's, it's just this, it was during the whole 
debate over who could take communion, which is exactly what we're seeing with politicians, like who can take communion, right? And it's exactly here we are again. Um, and I, I just found that so off-putting. And he just, I, I said, you know, I want to find other Catholics who wrestle with these questions. And he took this piece of paper and he wrote down National Catholic Reporter, Commonweal, America Magazine. And I write for all of those places. Now. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I was indoctrinated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm-hmm. But and it that's just part took, of the yeah. church too. I also hear some, some things about the importance of just being um, warm and welcoming, but not putting pressure on people, accepting people for who they are, meeting them for where they are. And you can invite them to stuff, but like, don't expect them to come, <laughs> you know? Just- well, yeah. I mean, that's why like, that's why nuns and nuns has been so successful, mm-hmm. which I think you, have you done an episode on that? I can't remember. Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Christina so came nun- on and talked about her book. Mm-hmm. So nuns and nuns, this, you know, bringing together women, religious and, and nuns or most, or I would say seekers more than there are right. more people who are curious about and that's been very fruitful in a lot of cities now. And they even had an experiment here where people lived in a convent for six months with the uh, Sisters of uh, Mercy down in the South Bay. Mm-hmm. And I think that's successful because it isn't the sisters who are involved in it, as you know, are always like, we're not here to, you know, to proselytize. We're modeling and we want to pass our charism on to somebody And so if it ends up being these people who aren't necessarily Catholic, at least they're going to walk away from this understanding the values that we espouse and understanding why we live the way we do. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, we just want to share our life. It's a joy to share our life. And yet there is this thing in me that I will admit where where it kind of feels like when you make a really beautiful meal, and you're ready to feed it to your friends. And then you find out like, oh, they have a food allergy. They can't eat it. <laughs> oh, and it's just, it's like, oh, I really, what I get here, what I'm tasting is so good. And I want to share this with you. And there's something that's blocking it from, from us being sure. in full communion. Right. And so that's always feels like a, a little bit of a disappointment for me. Cause I just want to share, share the goodness. You know, I absolutely agree with you on that sensation. I often feel, and I don't talk about this or write about this much, but the loneliness of my decision to become Catholic and how isolating that's been in many ways, just in the sense that I don't have a lot of friends who are Catholic. I mean, I have lots of friends like you who are Catholic, but here in Oakland, one person. Right. So who do I go to church with? Who do I talk to about this stuff? My prayer group kind of fell apart during COVID. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't have that week, that monthly, you know, sitting down with other Catholics and talking about stuff thing. Um, and it is extreme. And people don't take me seriously as an academic sometimes uh, mm-hmm. because they feel that anybody who believes in God is sort of silly or, you know, there's an anti- religious thing in the bay area i i don't want to bash the place that i live because it's a wonderful place and i but it, it is very profoundly weird 
to be Catholic, <laughs> <laughs> to be Catholic in, a, in the most secular part of America. What yeah. does that mean? It means that the other Catholics are not whites, yeah. right? They are not people who look like me. They're not people who have my job. They're mm-hmm. not people. They are Latinx, Asian, African-American. And so that's okay. But it is definitely something where I have to be aware of my whiteness when I move into their spaces because it's their church, you know, right. when I show up. So it's an awkward and it is it is isolating sometimes. Mm. I joked when Radical Reinvention came out that the whole book was like a like a Craigslist ad back then or like a <laughs> match.com or like what is it now? Like, you know, I don't want to even go on those apps. So I don't know, but like of like, I want to find friends. And I did. <laughs> well, I did. I found lots. <laughs> yes, I found you and our friend Jessica Mesman, who's right. uh, also wrestles with these questions, and yeah. all the people I work with, America and Commonwealth, but nobody lives here, Julia. <laughs> it's really lonely. Mm. So y'all need to move to the Bay Area. The weather's <laughs> perfect. It's 75 degrees today. You don't need to keep Beautiful. doing the, the Craig's place. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the, the ad. The ad. <laughs> the, yeah. H2. Now move here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the part that I find it is difficult. And I, I, I was, I was tweeting about it the other day and then I deleted all the tweets because I'm like, I just sound like I'm feeling sorry for myself. Mm. It's been this wonderful gift, but it's also just, it is very isolating sometimes because people don't know what to say Mm. in response to it. If you're Catholic in the, it's sort of like this weird, it's just, if you're, if you're, you know, queer and you go to burning man and 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 you like you live in a co-housing here it's great normal but if you're catholic it's weird so in some yeah. ways that's kind of cool right right it's actually radical how about it <laughs> you're a real anti-conformist um, so yeah in the midst of all this the the package of kaya oaks doing the things in the world (laughs) and authentically showing up as you are to all these spaces, spiritual direction, teaching, writing, being a Catholic person and, and being lonely with that in the Bay area. What is discipleship for you? That's a question I've been thinking a lot about during the pandemic, because I, it's funny. And I do talk about this in spiritual direction a lot. I have a much easier time talking and thinking about my relationship with God than I do with Jesus. And that's again, because I live here where in Jesus has been in a part of the world where Jesus has really been hijacked by the religious right. And that people are suspicious of um, Jesus because they associate him with evangelicals. And so to be a disciple of Jesus is hard for me to, to even, I'm totally like, you want to talk about mystical experiences and finding God in all things and art. And I'm like, yeah, I could go on all day. But when somebody says to me, who is Jesus to you? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? I'm at a loss for words. But I was thinking about this recently because of the Trump era, thankfully, hopefully receding into the rearview mirror. 
And how did I survive the last four years as a person of faith in a country where religion was weaponized and used uh, for all the wrong reasons to do harm? And I kept coming back to the Jesus who talks about, uh, is it Matthew 6, 6, like go into your room and pray in secret. And that's where your father who's in secret will reward you. And I was like, that's the discipleship that I've been, that is the sustaining faith, the personal private relationship with Jesus. And if I, that Jesus who meets us in our solitude, in our loneliness, I really love the singer songwriter, Nick Cave, and um, who I think is very God haunted. And he has a newsletter where he writes to his fans about music and his son died. It was very tragic a few years ago. And it has led him to this ongoing conversation with fans about death and, and, and the afterlife. And he grew up Anglican in Australia. And he talks about this Jesus inside of us, like this, this suffering entombed Christ who lives inside of us and how it's for him, that's more symbolic. And so as an artist, he's trying to open that up. But I think that's a really interesting idea. Who's like that private hidden Jesus that we don't share with everybody, that we don't beat people over the head with, mm -hmm. <laughs> that we don't use to hurt people or or punish them or call them out for being different in their sexuality or their gender or their race. Like who is that, that Jesus that we carry inside of us that sort of that sacred heart image is really, that's an interesting one to sit with mm. rather than like the public facing Jesus who's mm -hmm. standing there preaching and telling, you know, that Jesus who's like going to your room and shut the door. Oh yeah, right. Like that's <laughs> so that's what discipleship means to me sometimes is to to be willing to just say this is very very personal and very important to me and it's very vulnerable for me to talk about it and it's surprising to hear myself say that because I write about it but it is actually that sometimes discipleship is a place of vulnerability. Um, and that that's something we should be more comfortable with rather than feeling that we have to um, be confident about it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. So it's going into the room, shutting the door, being with Christ in our hearts, and probably when we're doing that, recognizing that we're vulnerable. And, and absolutely Christ sort of just minister to to that broken place in us. Yeah. Oh, so Kaya, last question. What is messy about all this for you? Well, everything. <laughs> <laughs> so messiness is actually a big theme of the book that I just finished because it's about how women are expected to be you know, feminine, and we're supposed to have lots of babies, and we're expected to take care of everybody, and we're expected to be sweet and kind and never get angry, and how we are uh, not like that, and so that we actually are much messier and more interesting than that. And that's what messiness is to me, it's being interesting because it's refusing to fit into expectations. And that's what um, I loved writing about saints and like 
women throughout history, writers, politicians, whatever, uh, who really um, refuse to conform to those ideas. And there's so many wonderful Catholic women religious who are like that. I mean, thank God, you know, for sisters and nuns, because that messy model of like, I'm not going to do what you expect me to do. I'm going to, like, I, I Mary Ward is one of my favorites. And she was, you know, somebody who she wanted to start a female version of the Jesuits and the church wouldn't let her. And so she said, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> and that kind of that messiness of like, this is the right idea. I have a good idea. So it is that kind of willingness to go outside of the prescribed boundaries of whatever it is that people expect you to be and to be willing to get into and that often means going outside of your comfort zone mm -hmm. and meeting people who you wouldn't expect to meet and and like you and me like who would think that we would end up being friends right mm -hmm. you wouldn't necessarily on paper it doesn't make sense <laughs> but we you know right. but like we like each other a lot and so that is the kind of messy unexpected relationship that if we had stayed in our little bubbles we would never have found. Mm, yeah. Going outside the bubbles, opening yes. ourselves up to whatever's on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's going to be messy, but it might be good too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Kaya. Thank you so much. This has been fun. You're so welcome. And I enjoyed myself as well. you to join me in this contemplative moment. Kaya and I discussed what it means to have a prophetic voice and to speak the truth, even if we're naming truths that others don't want to hear. In his 2014 apostolic letter to all consecrated people, Pope Francis wrote about what it means to be a prophet. He wrote, Prophets know God, and they know the men and women who are their brothers and sisters. They are able to discern and denounce the evil of sin and injustice. Because they are free, they are beholden to no one but God, and they have no interest other than God. Prophets tend to be on the side of the poor and the powerless, for they know that God himself is on their side. Kaya referenced the prophet Jeremiah's agony about being called to speak the truth. I'd like to read that scripture for you now. If you can, I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply as you listen and pray. Notice if certain words or phrases are seeming important to you at this time. Notice if there's a particular message that God wants you to hear. A reading from Jeremiah chapter 20 verses 7 through 13. You seduced me, Lord, and I let myself be seduced. You were too strong for me, and you prevailed. All day long I am an object of laughter. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I must cry out, 
violence and outrage I proclaim. The word of the Lord has brought me reproach and derision all day long. I say I will not mention him. I will no longer speak in his name. But then it is as if fire is burning in my heart, imprisoned in my bones. I grow weary holding back. I cannot. Yes, I hear the whisperings of many. Terror on every side. Denounce, let us denounce him. All those who were my friends are on the watch for any mishap of mine. Perhaps he can be tricked, and then we will prevail and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me, like a mighty champion. My persecutors will stumble. They will not prevail. In their failure, they will be put to utter shame, to lasting, unforgettable confusion. Lord of hosts, you test the just. You see mind and heart. Let me see the vengeance you take on them. For to you I have entrusted my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has rescued the life of the poor from the power of the evildoers. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good. <laughs>